Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fontan with a Future podcast. My name is Taylor, and I'm a medical student living with a single ventricle heart. Join me as I explain Fontan physiology, explore new congenital heart disease research, and share about my experience as a patient and doctor in training. In this episode, I will be discussing the impact of Fontan circulation on the liver, explain aspects of Fontan-associated liver disease, and talk about various types of liver testing your doctor may use to keep an eye on your liver. Before we begin, the information in this podcast is not medical advice. It's important to consult your physician before making medical and lifestyle decisions that may affect your health. Welcome back to another week of the Fontan with the Future podcast. I am really excited to talk about this next topic. I have received a lot of questions over the past few months about Fontan-associated liver disease and some of the implications, so I really want to use this time to kind of share my understanding, share kind of where some of the research is at, and directions we hope to go in the future. I feel like this is a little bit of a newer issue arising in the Fontan population. For example, when I was growing up, I didn't really hear much about anything related to the liver, maybe like little whispers of some studies, but nothing major. It wasn't really until I transitioned to adult care that I started to have a better understanding and kind of idea of what Fontan-associated liver disease is, as well as what are some of the tests and things that doctors are trying to do just to keep an eye on everything. It's been known for a while that different types of heart issues can impact the liver. So this is not even something that's specific to Fontan patients. For instance, patients that have heart failure or other type of heart problems due to a bunch of different factors can also see irregularities or issues with their liver. It just so happens that because of the nature of Fontan circulation, almost every single patient will have some type of irregularity within their liver. We know that this is typically a function of the time since Fontan procedure as well as age. So what that basically means is that we'll see more irregularities on liver imaging the older a patient is and the further out they are from their Fontan surgeries, which kind of makes sense. It just, you know, there's an accumulation of damage and stress on the liver. And there's even some studies that have shown that we can see some liver abnormalities as early as five years post-Fontan. So again, like I had said, when I was growing up, they didn't really necessarily think this was a big deal in kids, but I think some newer research and things coming out are making some cardiologists kind of reevaluate that thought. I want to preface this talk by just saying that we have ongoing research, but there's still a lot more research that needs to be done in this area. I think there's a lot of cardiologists and hepatologists that have a general understanding an idea of why this is happening, but we still don't have a lot of interventions or major solutions to some of the issues contributing to Fontan-associated liver disease. Before I get into some of the nitty-gritty details about Fontan-associated liver disease, 
I'm going to take some time just to kind of go over what the liver actually does in the body. I feel like before I came to medical school, I knew of the liver. I knew the liver did a lot of different things, but it's kind of like a black box organ. You don't really understand all the implications and influence it has over the body until you kind of get really down into studying all the details. First and foremost, the liver is a big abdominal organ. It's located mainly kind of on the right upper side of the abdomen and extends over leftwards a bit as well. It sits right under your lungs and your diaphragm, so it's only separated from the chest cavity by a really thin band of muscle. So the liver has a lot of different jobs in the body. One of the kind of main jobs the liver does is it filters through the blood and it helps metabolize a lot of compounds. So we may know this sometimes like with regards to certain drugs or medications people take. There's a lot of drugs and medications that need to be metabolized and activated by the liver to work properly in the body. The liver, as many of you also probably know, plays a big role in metabolizing or breaking down alcohol. It has proteins specifically made in the liver that can kind of handle and detoxify alcohol. The liver also produces a lot of compounds too in the body. So the liver will help make bile, which is a substance that we need in our digestion to help break down fats. It also produces proteins that are really important in coagulation or helping the blood clot. I know when we think about blood glucose levels or blood sugar levels, a lot of us will think about the pancreas and insulin, but the liver is actually also really important in regulating blood glucose levels. The liver can store glucose or sugar and it can also release or make new sugar. So this is really important, especially during periods of starvation or when you're not eating a lot. The liver is that organ that kind of pulls through and makes sure you have enough sugar in your body. Another important job that the liver does is the liver clears a substance called bilirubin, which essentially is a breakdown product from hemoglobin in red blood cells. And this bilirubin is important because sometimes when the liver is acting up, we see this bilirubin accumulate in the body, and this is what can cause people to have yellow discoloration of their skin and eyes. Finally, one other role that the liver does is the liver can make cholesterol and it can kind of help as well with fat and cholesterol metabolism within the body. This is just a very small kind of glance and overview of different jobs the liver does. It really is an incredible organ and even though it may not look super remarkable, it is like a powerhouse of the body and is super important. The one kind of cool thing about the liver is that it is a really large organ and it can take a lot of abuse. The liver is actually able to regenerate to a certain extent. So even if there is insults or inflammation or damage to the liver, a lot of times it is able to rebuild itself. We've also seen that people don't necessarily need their entire liver to live. For example, people can donate a portion of their liver to an individual who might be in need of a liver transplant and donors tend to survive and do just fine. In fact, sometimes the liver can even regrow or regenerate the part that was removed. So like I've said, the liver is a pretty amazing organ and can be pretty hardy and adapt to different conditions in the body. If the liver undergoes too much wear and tear, sometimes it can begin to scar and is no longer able to regenerate. We see this most commonly 
in conditions like viral hepatitis, so like hepatitis B or C, as well as people who overuse alcohol. At a certain point when there's too much damage, the liver just becomes too scarred and can no longer compensate. When there's lots and lots of scarring, this also increases a person's risk for the development of hepatocellular carcinoma, or cancer of the liver. These are extreme circumstances in when the liver is no longer able to tolerate the different types of insults being thrown on it. Now that we have a little background on the liver and what it does in the body, I want to switch gears and talk more about the Fontan circulation and how it interacts with the liver circulation. Like I've said in several of my past podcasts, Fontan circulation has passive return of venous blood to the heart against gravity. What this means is that because we don't have a pump that pushes venous blood to the lungs, the blood has to work its way back without any extra assistance. And this can cause congestion in the lower body as well as the abdomen. The liver has a really interesting circulation and it kind of acts as an intermediary between the blood from the intestines and the blood returning to the heart. Let me explain what I mean by this. When you eat and digest your food, there is a blood supply that supplies your intestines and helps absorb and collect all those nutrients from your meal. All this blood that needs to return to the heart to circulate the nutrients first travels through the liver before reaching the heart. This is sometimes called the portal venous system, in which all this venous blood carrying good nutrients is first processed by the liver and then sent to the heart. This is great because the liver can perform functions of metabolism and filtration before any compound is circulated broadly to the body. However, this is where we also run into some problems in the Fontan circulation. Because this blood flow is passive and the return is not assisted by any type of pump pushing blood to the lungs, the liver can get a little bit congested or bogged down by all this venous blood. Over time, this can cause stress on the liver. If you can imagine, there's tons of blood just sitting in the vessels in the liver, making them dilate and causing inflammation to occur. On top of the circulatory issue, the Fontan physiology poses a lot of other stressful obstacles on the body. For example, most Fontan patients have a degree of hypoxia or low blood oxygen levels given how their circulation is oriented. Some Fontan patients may even have lymphatic abnormalities, which can cause additional stressors. And there's also stressors that can occur around cardiac surgery, like periods of hypotension or low blood pressure, which can again cause damage on the liver in different ways. When there's damage or stress on the liver, cells within the liver will release inflammatory signals or little particles in the body that trigger cells to scar and regenerate tissue. Over time, scarring can become more pronounced just as a reflection of all the different types of stress on the liver. We know that just about every single patient with Fontan circulation will display some degree of scarring and stress. And like I mentioned before, in extreme cases of scarring in the liver, patients are at an increased risk of developing hepatocellular carcinoma or cancer of the liver. Obviously, this is the complication that we wanna prevent. So this is why being aware of the liver issues in Fontan patients and employing tests to watch over the liver 
is so important for empowering patients to live a long and healthy life. I understand that some of this stuff can sound really scary, especially if maybe you're hearing this for the first time, but I want to offer a word of assurance before I talk about some of the tests and things we use to monitor the liver. Typically, Fontan patients actually remain relatively stable despite some of the changes we may see on liver imaging. Liver health is really dependent upon heart health. And I know that my hepatologist has always told me that I will probably start to have issues with my heart before they start to see major issues with my liver. Some researchers have noted that there's almost an uncoupling effect between the liver imaging findings and what the liver actually does. What they mean by this is that the liver may appear to be very scarred on imaging, but from a functional standpoint, there's really not that much change. Again, every patient is different, and I know I have heard many patient stories of people who have had some significant concerns and complications regarding their liver. But I want to assure you, especially those who may have young children just starting out with Fontan, that this is not necessarily something that is going to be a huge issue or weight upon their health, especially in the earlier years. Now I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about how we can run tests and perform surveillance to check in on the health of the liver. I want to preface this by saying that every care center has some different regulations and to be completely honest, they really haven't standardized surveillance and testing measures for Fontan-associated liver disease. I will give an example of myself. I didn't really get any liver testing until I transitioned to adult care when I was around 22 or 23 years old. When I entered into adult cardiac care, I was connected with a hepatologist who initially ran a liver MRI and now has me get semi-annual liver ultrasounds or a liver ultrasound every six months along with some blood work. They currently have me on what they call the autopilot surveillance plan in which they just do these regular interval check-ins and really don't intervene at all unless there's a major change in imaging or lab work. I know I've heard from some patients that they get MRIs very frequently, and I know that there is even some care centers that are starting to do liver testing and biopsies on younger children. But this has been my experience so far, and I'm interested to see whether or not they'll start to standardize and land on some common practices between care centers. There's a couple different ways we can assess the liver. Typically, our two major approaches are imaging and lab tests. I'm going to first go through some of the different lab tests that your physician may run to check up on the liver, as well as what some of these different tests may mean. You may have heard your doctor refer to these labs as LFTs, or liver function tests, but essentially they look at specific proteins and enzymes related to the liver that can kind of be used to determine the health of the overall liver. The first major proteins that we look at are called AST and ALT. These are types of aminotransferases, which is just a fancy word for a type of enzyme or protein in the liver that can sometimes be elevated when the liver is damaged. We can use these markers for a lot of different liver conditions, not just Fontan-associated liver conditions. Another lab we look at is bilirubin. Like I mentioned earlier, bilirubin is a breakdown product from hemoglobin. 
and is processed by the liver. Sometimes when the liver is having a hard time keeping up, we can see an elevated level of bilirubin. And there's different types of bilirubin that I'm not going to get into, but can kind of help us identify where the problem might lie. Like I mentioned earlier, the liver also plays a role in making certain proteins important in the body. An important set of proteins that it makes are the coagulation proteins that are really important in helping blood clot. Sometimes we'll measure things called PT and PTT, also referred to as prothrombin time and partial thromboplastin time. These are both different measurements of how long it takes for different clotting factors to make a clot. If the liver is really damaged, sometimes it is not able to make as many of these coagulation proteins. So we can see an elevated time or elevated PT and PTT due to the fact that there's just not as many proteins available to clot properly. We have a similar finding with a protein called albumin. Albumin is another protein made by the liver that floats around in our blood plasma and helps ensure that there is enough fluid staying within the intravascular space. Sometimes, when the liver is damaged, we'll see a decreased level of albumin in the body. This can pose problems because when there's not a lot of albumin in the vessels, sometimes fluid within blood vessels will seep out into other tissues of the body and cause conditions like edema or swelling of the lower legs or the abdomen. Finally, one more important lab test that your doctors might order is the alpha-fetoprotein lab test. This is a special protein that can be elevated in the setting of liver cancer. Sometimes we refer to it as a tumor marker. While it's not always the perfect measurement, this can help your doctors detect any abnormalities that might be malignant or cancerous within your liver. Different labs have different measurements or standards for how to measure this protein, but my hepatologist has always said that as long as the value stays under double digits, they feel pretty comfortable that a patient does not have liver cancer. Moving on from lab tests, there's also many different imaging techniques we can use to look at the liver. I've already mentioned the two most common, either MRI or ultrasound. MRI gives us a much more detailed image of the liver structure and vasculature. We can use contrast and see where the blood is flowing and make sure all the vessels are working well. We can also see if there is any nodules or lesions within the liver that may or may not be concerning for liver cancer. We can also use ultrasound to image the liver as well. And ultrasound is a lot cheaper and a little bit faster than MRI. So sometimes providers choose to use this test more frequently just for ease of patient care. While the ultrasound doesn't give us quite as many details as the MRI, it can still see general blood flow in the liver and detect any lesions or major texture changes that might raise concern. Finally, there's an interesting component of imaging that can be used to try to detect the level of fibrosis or scarring within the liver. This is called elastography. Essentially, elastography uses a sound wave and can measure how quickly that wave moves across the surface of the liver to detect how stiff the liver is. If you can imagine, the more scarred the liver is, the stiffer it's going to be and actually the faster the sound wave will travel across the liver. We can use this test and measure it via either ultrasound 
or MRI. Elastography is used in a lot of other liver conditions to stage severity and detect overall prognosis. It's still pretty new to use this for Fontan-associated liver disease, and doctors have yet to determine a standardized scoring system, an idea of how this contributes to overall prognosis and progression of the disease. However, it's another interesting modality that I think we will continue to look into in the years to come. Finally, the last main way that we can sometimes test the liver is by doing a direct liver biopsy. This is when we insert a needle through the skin into the liver and take a sample of the liver tissue. We can then use different stains to detect the level of scarring or fibrosis as well as the health of the tissue. It's important to note that a biopsy is not always representative of the entire liver. And we know that in Fontan-associated liver disease, different parts of the liver can be affected in different ways, meaning that one area may be really scarred and another area may have fewer signs of disease. So sometimes it's hard to make conclusions off of these liver biopsies because it may not be representative of the entire organ. I know there's new studies coming out trying to look at different stains of the tissue to see if there is new ways that we can assess the level of scarring and try to offer some prognosis or idea of what stage a patient might be in. While we have all of these tests at our disposal, it's still important to note that we haven't really come up with a standard way to stage Fontan-associated liver disease and we haven't really found good ways to predict how a patient might do based off of how much scarring they have on their liver. Like I mentioned before, just because a patient has a lot of liver scarring doesn't always necessarily mean that their lab values will be super abnormal or their liver won't be able to carry out the jobs it needs to do. While we're trying our best to use tools that we use for other liver diseases, we still just need a lot more research in this area to best serve the Fontan patient population. At this point, you might be asking yourself, what can we do about this? And I've asked myself that question a lot too. Unfortunately, we don't have any treatments for Fontan-associated liver disease at this point. Aside from pursuing something like a transplant, we don't really know how we can stop or reverse some of this damage. Newer research has come out and is starting to indicate that perhaps using medications like ACE inhibitors, including things like enalapril, or even medications like sildenafil might be able to slow the progression of Fontan-associated liver disease, but we still have a long way to go when it comes to research. Like I mentioned, transplant is really the only definitive thing we have at this point, but not every patient is at a point where their heart function or their liver function is decompensated in such a way that would make them a candidate for a new organ. Some patients have received a combination of a heart and liver transplant. Other patients have actually received only a heart transplant and have seen significant improvement in their liver scarring and function. While I don't even think every Fontan patient will necessarily need a heart transplant down the road, this just goes to show how we unfortunately don't have much options right now, but we have lots of opportunity to look into new therapeutics 
and treatments. Aside from this, the only other thing we can really do for patients is to continue liver surveillance, make sure patients aren't developing any type of cancer, and treat any symptoms that might come up alongside liver disease. There's also suggestions that avoiding liver toxins like alcohol, making sure you're getting tested for hepatitis B and C, avoiding eating too much fatty foods, and maintaining a healthy active lifestyle will help to prevent any other additional stressors on the liver aside from the stressors of our Fontan circulation. To wrap things up, I know for some of us, including myself, this can kind of be a disappointing thing to think about and learn about. We've jumped over the hurdle of surviving the first few years of life with a single ventricle heart condition, and now we're running into some problems down the road. However, we are pioneers on this amazing single ventricle journey, and this is just another bump in the road that we have to confront and work through. I have faith in the medical and scientific community that we will continue to work hard to address these new issues rising up with Fontan-associated liver disease and that we will have new therapeutics and things to try to promote health within the generations of Fontan patients to come. As an assurance for all of you, all Fontan patients are going to have some degree of liver disease, but the majority of us are able to live a healthy life despite these liver changes. When we keep our body and our heart healthy, this also supports our liver health by ensuring that we're getting proper surveillance and liver imaging, and following up with a hepatologist that is familiar with Fontan-associated liver disease, we can work to prevent any further complications that may arise. We are all heart warriors and have overcome so much to get to this point. Let's celebrate life and care well for our bodies. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fontan with the Future podcast. My name is Taylor, and I hope you will join me next week to hear more about CHD. If you want to reach out or learn more, follow me at Fontaine with the Future on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again. Hope to have you listening next week.